Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Hello and welcome back. Today I am joined by Ian Bond, Foreign Policy Director here at the CER. This week the Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation is held in Beijing under the chairmanship of President Xi Jinping with Russian President Vladimir Putin and around 30 other world leaders in attendance. Just to start with, maybe in a couple of sentences, Ian, what is the Belt and Road Forum and why should we care? Well, China has this initiative called One Belt, One Road or the Belt and Road Initiative, which is about building links between China and Europe primarily, uh, although it also stretches to Africa and the Middle East. And uh, this is an opportunity for China to bring together a big group of international leaders, leaders of international organizations, and to pr promote this initiative. And frankly, it's the kind of thing that the United States used to do in bringing together lots of leaders to talk about a big uh, comprehensive investment program for a difficult part of the world. So we want to take this as an occasion to dig a little deeper into a very complex relationship triangle, if you will, uh, that is the relationship of three neighbors, China, Russia and the European Union. Let us start with the relationship between China and Russia. You write that the two are often bracketed together as the West's most important adversaries, but that in fact it would be an error for the West to pursue policies that force them together unnecessarily. Could you elaborate on that? Well, although Russia and China talk about strategic partnership and President Putin in particular has been very enthusiastic in suggesting that Russia is pivoting towards China and towards Asia in general, the reality is that if you look at trading relationships, both the EU and the US are more important partners for China than Russia is. And for Russia... Uh, the EU is a much more important trading partner than China is. So the economic ties don't suggest that this is the key relationship for either of the two powers. If you look at defense and security, it's quite fascinating to see that although Russia is selling uh, more defense equipment to China, It balances that with very significant sales to India, which is a regional rival of China, and to Vietnam, which is also a regional rival of China. And so there is a, a, a strange uh, relationship in which there is more talk about security partnership and defense partnership than the reality seems to justify. Uh, and then, uh, finally, perhaps, if one looks at regional relations between Russia and China, then China is actually pushing Russia out of Central Asia economically. Uh, Russia continues to be the main provider of security for Central Asia. But it's though, as though the Russians are now serving as bouncers at a nightclub where China is buying the drinks. That's a great picture. Um, I want to talk a bit more about the economic tensions between the two uh, in the region. One potential institutionalization of this tension that you write about comes from two competing visions of economic development. There's on the one hand China's Silk Road economic belt, which is designed to link China to Europe. And on the other hand, Russia's Eurasian Economic Union, which is designed to bring together a number of former Soviet states into a single economic space. What are these initiatives exactly and how do they fit together? 
Well, it's easier to describe the Eurasian Economic Union because that is, to some extent at least, modelled on the European Union. So it has a commission. It, it is supposed to have some supranational powers, although they're much weaker than the, the powers of the European Commission. Uh, it has a court for deciding disputes, and it's st setting standards for its members to trade uh, among themselves. But what distinguishes it is that it has quite a high external tariff. The One Belt, One Road initiative is much more about China uh, investing in infrastructure to link China to, to Europe. And it's a more open initiative. There's no, there's no institutionalization or very little institutionalization. And there's no idea of economic exclusivity. I think that the Chinese think that their economy is so competitive that they don't actually need to erect any barriers to anybody else. They will always outcompete them. Okay. Traditionally, in trade and economic matters, the EU and the US have been on one side and China on the other. Has that changed? And if so, what should the EU now do about it? Well, I think that has changed. In the uh, Belt and Road Summit, President Xi uh, opposed protectionism, uh, at least in his rhetoric, while almost simultaneously uh, G7 finance ministers uh, were meeting in Italy and the uh, US Treasury Secretary said that the US reserved the right to be protectionist. And that's a big change from anything that we have seen in recent history. And I think, therefore, that it's right that the EU should say to the Chinese, well, we like the rhetoric that we're hearing from President Xi, on uh, opening up markets, on, uh, on opposing protectionism. But the reality is that China remains, in some respects, quite a closed market. And we'd like to be able to compete on a level playing field with China in bidding for contracts in the Belt and Road Initiative and so on. Uh, I think it's quite important, though, that both the EU and China, which benefit enormously from globalization and from open markets uh, should now be working together to try to preserve that liberal trading order. Moving on for now to the relationship between Russia and the EU. In your writing, I think you paint a picture of strategic competition between the two, of a contest over the friendship or the alignment of six in-between states, um, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Georgia, Moldova and Ukraine. How are both sides trying to draw these countries in, into their respective sphere of influence or way of life, perhaps? Well, I, I'm tempted to say very incompetently. And what's striking about the, the way in which both Russia and the EU have behaved towards this part of the world is that they have uh, put off the countries that lie between them as much as they have attracted them in some ways. So Russia starts with certain historical and cultural advantages. And you can see this uh, yesterday was the anniversary of the uh, Victory Day as it's celebrated in, uh, in Russia and the rest of the former Soviet Union at the end of the Second World War. And the Russians play very much on, on that. But for a number of the countries that lie between Russia and the EU, it's quite a complicated legacy. 
the, in the 30s, Ukraine in particular suffered enormously from uh, a man-made, man-made famine caused by Stalin's policies of collectivization. And countries like Belarus and Ukraine lost a lot of their intelligentsia, a lot of their leading political and philosophical thinkers in the 1930s to Stalin's purges. And so the, the legacy of that period is rather ambiguous. And sometimes Russia rather overdoes the, uh, the concept that you know, we were all, all in this together in the 1930s and the 1940s. So that's something that I think they get wrong. Right. So you say both sides have been incompetent. That was Russia. How has the EU failed the, the in-betweeners? The EU has had the Eastern Partnership Program since 2009, but it has never really defined what the objective of the partnership is. And some of the countries, some of the six countries in Eastern Europe and the South Caucasus want to have a, pers a perspective of membership of the European Union, and that's never been on offer. But it's not been clear what is the destination. And in many cases, countries are being asked if they sign association agreements with the EU to adopt most of the EU's standards and regulations. And that involves quite painful reforms for some of them, but without any certainty as to what the reward is at the end of that. And so that's been a serious weakness in the EU's approach to, uh, to this region. I've always really liked the statement that Russia has made these states an offer that they couldn't refuse and the EU has made an offer that they couldn't understand. I'm afraid that that remark from Karl Bildt, the uh, former Swedish foreign minister, is, is distressingly accurate. Okay, so continuing on this idea um, of what can the EU do, should we talk about the way ahead then? Um, from your writing, I think, emerges a picture of a region with many overlapping interests and spheres of influence and To me, when I read your publications, that becomes most obvious when you describe the three main integration projects in the region, in this Eurasian landmass. Um, that is, on the one hand, the European Union, then the Eurasian Economic Union, and China's One Belt, One Road Initiative. Um, and the EU, you write, is the largest economic bloc. The Eurasian Economic Union covers the largest area, and One Belt, One Road covers the largest population. And geographically, the three projects overlap. And you note that historically, if great powers had overlapping spheres of influence, there would almost certainly be conflict between them. So where do you identify the main risks in the current situation? Well, I think you have identified the main risk, which is that this becomes uh, an area where there is a competition for influence between three the three main powers. And in fact, in many areas, there are synergies between their objectives. Certainly, if you look at uh, the Central Asian region, it's quite underdeveloped. There are risks from uh, Islamist extremism, uh, radicalism. Uh, there's underdevelopment. There are environmental risks and so on. Uh, so there are a lot of common interests there in trying to improve the situation of the, of the region. And in essence... All of the three powers ought to have an interest in the stability and the prosperity of the reason, regions that, uh, that lie on their, on their borders. So there's a, a basis for uh, some cautious move forward, but there is also plenty of risk there that 
if you start to see things in terms of a zero-sum game, uh, that actually you just end up uh, frustrating each other's objectives and making the situation in the region more unstable and more dangerous for everyone. Could you get a bit more concrete maybe on these cautious moves? Do we already see some of them or what would you recommend that particularly the EU should be doing to defuse the situation? Well, what you have at the moment is a situation where the EU has started to work with China on One Belt, One Road. There is uh, the rather inelegantly named connectivity platform between the EU and China, which is looking at ways in which China and the EU can work together, particularly along the corridor through the Caucasus and Central Asia to improve infrastructure, to improve uh, communications, digital links and so on. Uh, and there is a link between China and the Eurasian Economic Union, although it hasn't developed very far, but at least there is something. The missing element is the connection between the EU and the Eurasian Economic Union. And the Eurasian Economic Union in this can be both a proxy for a better EU-Russia relationship, but also a less exclusive EU-Russia relationship, so that it does take into account the interests of other countries like Belarus or Kazakhstan or Armenia, which are members of the, the Eurasian Economic Union. So that's where I would see the, the gap at the moment is in that relationship between the EU and the Eurasian Economic Union. Traditionally, in trade and economic matters, the EU and the US have been on one side and China on the other. Has that changed? And if so, what should the EU now do about it? Well, I think that has changed. In the uh, Belt and Road Summit, President Xi uh, opposed protectionism, uh, at least in his rhetoric, uh, while almost simultaneously uh, G7 finance ministers uh, were meeting in Italy and the Uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary said that the U.S. reserved the right to be protectionist. And that's a big change from anything that we have seen in recent history. And I think, therefore, that it's right that the EU should say to the Chinese, well, we like the rhetoric that we're hearing from President Xi on uh, opening up markets, on, uh, on opposing protectionism. But the reality is that China remains, in some respects, quite a closed market. And we'd like to be able to compete on a level playing field with China in bidding for contracts in the Belt and Road Initiative and so on. Uh, I think it's quite important, though, that both the EU and China, which benefit enormously from globalization and from open markets, Uh, should now be working together to try to preserve that liberal trading order. Thank you very much, Ian. And uh, to all listeners, we've merely scratched the surface here. I can only recommend you read Ian's excellent writings on these issues, which you can find on the CER website. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London.